1: From one perspective, you can say that a major part of our practice comes down to the awareness of and purification of motivation. There's one Tibetan teaching which expresses this very succinctly. It says, everything rests on the tip of motivation. In Western cultures, we usually measure the value of our actions by the effectiveness of the outcome, by its success or failure. The Dalai Lama, in one teaching, he said a very different frame of reference, which would be a very different way of looking at how we live in the world. He said that the true value of an action is not measured by whether it's successful or not, but by the motivation behind it. So when we look at our actions in the world and we assess their effectiveness, it's really a call to looking at our motivation, what was behind that action, what motivated it. We can't control all the conditions in the world. You know, sometimes, regardless of what we do, Sometimes there's praise, sometimes there's blame, sometimes there's success, sometimes there's failure. But we do have the possibility of training our hearts. <clears throat> Within the Buddhist teachings, there's one particular motivation that is so vast and so skillful and so ennobling of our lives that it can become the basis, the foundation for our entire life's journey. This is the motivation that's called bodhijitta, that we've spoken about at different times. Bodhijitta means the heart-mind of awakening, the awakened heart, the awakened mind. So bodhijitta is the aspiration that we can cultivate, that we can nurture. It's the motivation to awaken, to free ourselves, in order to awaken and benefit all beings. So this is a very powerful seed to plant, this seed of bodhicitta May my life, may my actions, may my practice be for the benefit, the welfare, the awakening <coughs> of all. And although these teachings were f- more fully developed in the later schools of Buddhism, we also find <coughs> the same altruistic aspiration uh, throughout the texts as well. There's one discourse in the Middle End Sayings where a Brahmin youth, um, his name was Brahmayu, he was intent on following the Buddha around just to observe his actions and how he was. He was kind of testing the Buddha to see if he was living up to this claim of awakening. It said he shadowed the Buddha for nine months, just keeping an eye out. And this is from the sutta. So this is Brahmayu describing how the Buddha would take his meditative seat and as he would come and sit down. He sets his body erect and establishes mindfulness in front of him. Now, what follows next would be good advice for us. He does not occupy his mind with self affliction or the affliction of others or the affliction of both. He sits with his mind set on his own welfare, on the welfare of others, and on the welfare of both, even on the welfare of the whole world. So this is said how the Buddha would take his seat, setting his mind on the welfare. Himself, of others, and of the whole world. And then again, in the Buddha's instructions to the first sixty disciples who became fully enlightened, who became arhants, uh, he gave these instructions to these to these sixty arhants. He said, Go forth, O bhikkhus for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good, benefit, and happiness of people and devas. Let not two go by one way. Teach the Dharma, excellent in the beginning, excellent in the middle, excellent in the end. Proclaim the noble life, altogether perfect and pure. Work for the good of others. You have done your duty. So right from the beginning, right in the very earliest texts, this altruistic aspiration, you know, as the foundation for practice, is there. We can understand and practice bodhicitta on two levels. One level is called relative bodhicitta, and that is the practice of compassion. The other level is called ultimate bodhicitta, and that is understanding the empty nature of the mind. So relative level is compassion, ultimate level is emptiness. And it's said that when both of these are present, compassion and emptiness, enlightenment is unavoidable. So when I read that, I thought, well, this these two would be worth exploring. <laughs> uh, our f- ultimate bodhicitta, relative bodhicitta, compassion, emptiness, enlightenment is unavoidable. so tonight i'd like to explore these, what they are by themselves, how they interrelate and how we can put them into practice in the world. So relative bodhicitta is compassion, and it manifests as compassionate response, compassionate action in the world. It's called relative because this compassion is operating on the relative level of beings. We're sending compassion or having compassion for ourselves, for others, Talking about self and other, concept of being. That's the level on which this compassion is operative. So, what is this feeling? You know, when compassion is strong, it's that feeling in the heart that wants to alleviate suffering. That's the movement of the heart. In the face of suffering, it wants to alleviate it, it wants to bring it to an end. When we have compassion then our hearts are opening open to the suffering that exists both in ourselves and in the world and it overcomes indifference it overcomes apathy it's this feeling which moves us to act it moves us to take action and it's this very feeling that is said to have motivated the bodhisattva on his very long journey to Buddhahood was this compassionate wish to alleviate the suffering of beings. Now, the Dalai Lama said something very interesting about this quality. He said, compassion and love are precious things in life. They are not complicated. They are simple, but difficult to practice. So I find that very interesting. Why would such beautiful and ennobling qualities, like love, like compassion, even though they're simple, they're not complicated, why are they difficult to practice? I think we really have to look at this in our lives and in our experience. So compassion arises in our willingness to come close to suffering. If we're not willing to open to the suffering that's there, compassion is not going to arise. The problem is that even though many of us may want to be compassionate, and perhaps in many situations are, it's not always easy to open to the suffering that's present. This is not always an easy thing to do. Now, just as there are many times in our practice and in our lives when we don't want to open to and acknowledge our own pain, in the same way, there are many times when we don't particularly want to open to the pain of others. There are very strong tendencies in the mind that keep us defended that keep us withdrawn, that keep us indifferent, that keep us apathetic in the face of suffering. And this indifference is often unacknowledged, and it's a great barrier to compassionate response. So just as an experiment, you know, to see how this is working in your own practice here and in your lives outside, watch. The response or the reaction in the mind, the next time you're facing a situation of suffering. It might be some pain in the body. It might be some painful emotion that's arising. Maybe feelings of discontent or fear or envy or jealousy or unworthiness or shame or loneliness. You know, there's a long list of unpleasant emotions is our first response, oh, good, let me open to this. Let me explore. Sometimes, perhaps, hopefully more now than six weeks ago. But very often our reaction, our first instinctive reaction to the pain, to the suffering, whether it's physical or emotional, very often our instinctive reaction is to pull back. We don't want to open to it because, precisely because it's painful you know might be interactions with a difficult person that's that's really a great time to watch how we're responding you know somebody's being difficult in our lives are we open or do we pull back do we not want to be with that difficulty Dalai Lama has uh, and this comes i think from Shanti Deva uh, there's a great practice. He says, your enemies teach you patience. And you should honor your enemies. They teach you patience. You know, we've talked a lot about patience and how valuable it is and what a, what a powerful power me it is and how helpful it is. But when we're in some conflict with somebody... Do we remember this? Are we actually practicing? Oh, thank you. (laughs) This is a chance for me to practice this power me of patience. (laughs) I'm so grateful to you. It's not so easy to do. You know, so again, it has to do with our response to suffering. What is it? Are we open to it? And it doesn't have to be huge suffering. Sometimes it's it's just mild difficulty. But can we watch you know, what our response is? Is it openness or is it withdrawal? Is it closed? We can watch our minds not only with respect to what's happening to us immediately, but how do we respond to suffering in the world? You know, in the media, and we we, we get so much information about just huge natural disasters you know, or political or religious violence you know, or racial just injustice and oppression. What happens when we face these situations, either in person or through the vivid images of the media? You know, when, when we are brought close to the suffering, what do we do? Do we feel uneasy, do we withdraw, do we turn away, or do we let them all in? So this is something for us to look at in ourselves. This is, this is not theoretical. This is how we're responding to the truth of dukkha, to the truth of suffering in the world. <clears throat> it was really interesting for me, in could see all of these different tendencies, this these different ways of responding to a growing awareness of suffering. Uh, I could see all of them at work in my own mind in these last five or six years or so. It was at a point when IMS really committed itself to diversity and to doing the work of, beginning the work of undoing racism you know, both in the gross and more subtle ways it manifests, both in society in general, in our own lives, here as an an institution. And so beginning to do this work, it was so uh, both eye-opening and heart-opening. And one of the most striking and unsettling aspects for me was to see how easy it was for me, as a white person, in this opening you know, to the racism that is present, how easy it is to stay uninvolved and unaware, because it didn't touch me personally. You know? And so it was striking, and it was so shocking to me to see that level of disconnect with something that was so prevalent in our society. So these are the tendencies that can be in the mind. This is just one example and one arena. There are many examples. You know, how do we respond to global warming? Just, and, you know, the, the potentially disastrous consequences of what's happening. You know, suffering on a massive scale... It's hard to let it in. You know, it's hard to be open to it and then to be responsive. So we need to just take a look in all of these different situations where we come close to suffering, where we're beginning to open up, just to see what our response actually is. Now, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, compassion is a verb meaning compassion is manifest as action. It's not enough <clears throat> to admire these qualities of loving kindness or compassion from afar, you know, or to to appreciate that they're noble qualities. But somehow removed from our daily life interactions or cultivating the metta and compassion only in the solitude of a meditation retreat, It's, it's really not enough. So the great question for all of us, in all our various arenas of life, whatever they may be, the question is, how can our hearts stay open, given the magnitude of suffering in the world? You know, is it even possible? So this challenge is not theoretical because our practice is about the transformation of consciousness. It's about the purification of motivation, the purification of our hearts that increasingly makes compassionate responsiveness the default setting of our lives rather than withdrawal being the default setting, or being closed the default setting. So this is the transformation that we're engaged in. Compassion, developing it and acting on it, requires many associated qualities. It requires openness. It requires interest. It requires mindfulness. It requires equanimity so that we can learn to let things in, we can let the world in with all the different kinds of dukkha that come with that. Can we let it in without being overwhelmed by it, without drowning in sorrow? So a big part of the development of compassion is learning to simply be with the truth of how things actually are. And this is the great gift of mindfulness to compassion. Mindfulness connects us to what is happening, both personally within our own minds and bodies and to the world around us. Now, we're doing this... In every sitting, in every walking, as you go through the day, every time you're willing to open to some difficulty, when you're willing to open and feel and experience a pain in the body or an emotional pain, when you're being mindful and open in that way, that is the doorway to compassion. We're beginning to open ourselves to the experience of suffering And that is the cause for compassion to arise. What's so interesting, and you've probably experienced this many times in your own lives, and perhaps often on retreat, to see how when we are more willing to be with our own pain in a compassionate way, when we're open to it, rather than pushing it away, or denying, or avoiding, or being indifferent. And we can be open to it. The more we open to our own pain and suffering, the easier it is, the more courage we have, to open to the pain and suffering of others. There was a Zen teacher in California. His name uh, is Lou Richmond. Some years ago... He came down with a terrible, life-threatening disease. It was viral encephalitis. It was really a devastating illness. He was in a coma for two weeks and brain damage. It took three or four years you know, for him to really recover from this illness, and for a while it wasn't clear whether he would recover. And he came to a very interesting understanding through his illness. He said, Sometimes when I'm asked to describe the Buddhist teaching, I say this everything is connected, nothing lasts, you are not alone. This is really just a restatement of the traditional three marks of existence everything is connected non-self, nothing lasts, impermanence, you are not alone, suffering. I don't think I would have expressed the truth of suffering as you are not alone before my illnesses, but now I find that talking about it that way gets at something important. The fact that we all suffer means we are all in the same boat, and that's what allows us to feel compassion. There's something so true about that. You know, and I found in myself that when I can feel going through some difficulty, some pain, and really open to it, it's so easy to feel compassion for anybody else who might be experiencing that same pain, realizing we are not alone. We're all in the same boat together. And understanding that and realizing it really breaks down the barriers of separation. It allows the compassion to flow very freely. So the beginning of compassion is empathy. And this happens when we take a moment to stop and feel what another person may be feeling before rushing on with our lives you know, and this stopping is its own practice because many times we may be cognizant. We may know somebody else is going through something, you know, so intellectually we see it. But often we don't take the time, even if it's just for a few moments, to actually stop and feel it, to, to let it in, to feel what the other person is feeling. And so this is the movement of empathy. Empathy is the heart-mind of inclusion, where it takes everything in. Ryo who was 18th, 19th century Zen poet and Zen master, hermit and Wonderful stories about Ryokan. He lived up, you know, very poor up in the mounds in his little hut and would just wander the villages playing with the village children and wrote the wonderful haiku poetry about his understandings and realization. And in a couple of haiku, which I'll read, he, he so expressed this sense of inclusion, of taking things in, It may seem that I have locked myself away from the people of the world. And yet, why is it I have never ceased to think of them? If my arms draped in these black robes were only wide enough, how gladly I would shelter in them all the people of this floating world. Now, this is just that sense of open-heartedness. and its open-heartedness, also with a sense of poignant humor, because Khan was so extraordinary. He had this open-heartedness even towards inanimate objects. I've forgotten my begging bowl, but no one would steal it. No one would steal it. How sad for my begging bowl. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> the poor begging bowl. <laughs> Nobody wanted it. We can practice developing empathy in many different kinds of situations. You know, it might be in the distress of the restless person sitting next to us in the meditation hall you know what's our reaction is our reaction why are they disturbing my meditation or is our reaction a sense of feeling the discomfort they must be in so right there in this in this very simple situation we can really watch and see what is our conditioning you know and can we can even even if our first reaction is irritation or annoyance, can we see that? can we be mindful of that and say, no, there's another possibility here, you know, and drop back into that open heartedness of empathy sometimes it may be practice empathy with regard to the people who are very close to us, you know, maybe in intimate relationships, and really feeling the suffering that they may be going through. Some years ago, you know, in the long, in the long evolution of IMS as an organization, it's 37, 38 years now, organizationally we've gone through lots of ups and downs and times when it was very easeful, as it has been, happily, as it's been lately for the last many years, but earlier, we would go through some big, big organizational storms, figuring out, you know, how do we do this? I remember one board meeting, this must go back, I don't know, 15, 20 years, there was a lot of conflict. You know, people just had very different ideas about directions and what we should do, and so we were having this very heated board meeting with lots of opinions flying back and forth, and I could feel myself being very attached to a particular point of view and getting really tight in my own way of seeing things and you know, very annoyed at people who didn't see it as clearly as I did. <laughs> 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 and then at some point, the suffering that I was feeling became so obvious, you know, and... and this is really the great, the great uh, prompt of suffering when it becomes so obvious just what is going on here. You know, how am I getting so caught? How am I getting so lost in this? And I did something. It was just a little mental move that was so freeing and liberating. So we were in this meeting and, you know, all this conflict and... So I just stopped for a moment, I I just kind of settled back, took a few deep breaths, and I asked myself the question, why are these others who had the opposite points of view, why do they feel the way they feel? You know, they're not irrational beings, although I had thought so (laughs) a few minutes before. But when I could just stop and make some space in myself and say, yeah, well, why do they feel the way they do? It was amazing the space that opened up. It actually allowed me to see things from their perspective. And as soon as I did that, the whole energy of the conversation changed. You know, instead of this polarity and fighting and divisiveness, in seeing the different perspectives, then it became just an interesting exploration of what the best thing to do is. So this is another kind of empathy where we're, we're in a situation and we allow ourselves to feel something from another person's viewpoint. Bankai, the great 16th century Zen master, a Japanese Zen master, one of my all-time favorite teaching lines, he said, don't side with yourself. <laughs> Just that. If you, if you did nothing else for these three months but leave here with that, that would be a tremendous accomplishment. Because how often are we just siding with ourselves? We're caught in our own viewpoint. Don't side with ourselves. That means opening, that means empathy, that means being willing to feel, to see, to understand what other people are feeling and understanding. Now, there may be times when people really are behaving badly, you know, who are doing really harmful things, whether to ourselves or to others, and our usual reaction to that might be, you know, anger at the harm people are doing and judging how bad they are. But is it possible to stop and feel what is going on in a larger context, even in very extreme circumstances? So there's one story which you know I, I came across years ago, and it's such a powerful example of this. It was a story of uh, one of the physicians to the Dalai Lama, Dr. Tenzin Choedric who was imprisoned by the Chinese government for 17 years, imprisoned and tortured in just one of these horrible scenarios. And he was eventually released and came to this country, and there was an article just describing, he was describing himself, how he had survived, not only, not only physically, but how he would survived emotionally and mentally, keeping his heart free of hatred free of anger towards those who, you know, were so brutal to him. He said (laughs) that he understood that his enemies, you know, his tormentors, were human beings like himself, and that his guards were also people in adverse circumstances. That's an amazing enlargement of context. You know, His understanding that they were creating this very unwholesome, unskillful karma that would bring this immense suffering back to themselves. He was able to see this. He said he never forgot the commonality of the human condition, you know, and that all actions bear fruit. All actions bring results. But what's so amazing when I read this you know, it would be so easy to think, oh, yeah, they'll get theirs, you know, as calm the karmic wheel turns. But he wasn't holding that understanding as a vehicle of revenge. He was holding it as a vehicle of compassion. You know? And so he could see the suffering of his tormentors, of his guards. That's a huge enlargement, you know, of the context of understanding this very intense situation And it's important to understand that in situations where it's possible, sometimes we do need to take appropriate action, you know, to set proper boundaries, to redress injustices. All of these actions can be taken, very strong actions. There's one, there's one phrase in Tibetan Buddhism which expresses this possibility. It's called wrathful compassion, you know, where a strong energy is needed to stop something that's harmful. But it's essential that we look at the motivation behind it. You know, are our actions coming from a place of anger and hatred? Or do they come from an understanding of the immense suffering that's being caused? Compassion is that movement or that response in this situation how can I help? How can I help alleviate this suffering? That's not resentment. That's not anger. That's not hatred. How can I help alleviate the suffering? There was an interview with <coughs> Ang San Suu Kyi just after she was released from house arrest. You know, many I forget how many years. It was many, many years of house arrest in uh, Burma. She had an interview with an Australian newspaper just after her release. And they asked her, you know, upon your release, don't you want to bring these generals down? These, you know, these generals who uh, brutalized Burma. And she said, no, I want to bring them up. And that's an amazing response. No, I don't want to bring them down. I want to bring them up. That's, that's the move, that's the heart of compassion. So empathy brings us close to suffering. Empathy you know, is that opening of the heart where we can begin to feel the suffering either in ourselves, in others, in the world. But compassion takes us a step further. It's not only f- feeling what others are going through, but it's that move that's in that initiative, that energy to act to respond. As compassion grows, we begin to take a very active engagement you know with the suffering in the world, responding to the suffering in whatever way is appropriate in whatever way is possible. <clears throat> Sometimes we may act in very small and unregarded ways. You know, it may be a small gesture of friendliness or forgiveness or generosity. One practice that the Dalai Lama said he does, a small but profound practice, this this would be an amazing thing to really work with, he said, I try to treat whoever I meet as an old friend. This gives me a genuine feeling of happiness. It is the practice of compassion. So imagine taking that on. You know, that whoever we meet, I, I try to treat whoever I meet as an old friend. Our lives would be a great up, up, swing of joy, of happiness. We're meeting our old friends all the time. You know? But do we remember to do this? I mean, the, the habit of withdrawal, the habit of indifference, you know, can really uh, take hold. So it's a practice. We shouldn't overlook the small opportunities. You know, full compassionate connection. I think many of you are probably familiar with uh, the famous butterfly effect described in chaos theory in science. You know, the, the the scientific, the <laughs> the one scientific sentence I barely understood was about chaos theory was. Sensitive dependence on initial conditions, which, as I understood it, means that in a nonlinear system, a small input into the system can have a very big output, can have a very big result. And so the example given was that of a butterfly flapping its wings in China two weeks ago can be the cause of a hurricane developing here. You know, small, tiny input, huge output. So some years ago, as an example of this, but there there are many, of course, uh, a few years ago I saw a documentary which is called A Small Act. And in the mid-1970s, the documentary was about uh, this Swedish woman named Hilda Bach, who was just making a small monthly donation uh, to some group that was supporting education in Kenya, you know, and helping helping kids from impoverished villages continue with their education. So she was just off in Sweden, you know, and it was a small monthly gift. One of the kids that was sponsored, his name was Chris Maburo. He was able to finish his schooling, his his high school schooling. He went to the University of Nairobi, finished there, graduated, went to law school, got a Fulbright to Harvard, got a master's degree in international human rights law from Harvard, went back to Kenya, set up his own foundation, to help really bright kids, you know, who needed needed help to continue their education. And so, you know, maybe hundreds or thousands of kids transformed by this chain of events. You know, a, a small monthly donation, that's the butterfly flapping its wings. And then, you know, it affects this brilliant Kenyan boy, so that's maybe a little bigger butterfly. Flapping its wings, creating a whole foundation. To... So it's amazing the impact you know we can have. So we shouldn't underestimate the power of these small these small acts of generosity of compassion. Sometimes compassion manifests as acts of tremendous courage. You know, we've seen them. You know with some of the most famous exemplars of this in the world. You know, they've become icons in a way. You think of people like Nelson Mandela, you know, or Aung San Suu Kyi, or Dr. King, or Gandhi, you know, who have a courageous vision you know, that motivates these acts of compassion, of nonviolence, of love, that transformed whole societies. So it's huge, huge impact on their own societies and in the world. You know, just motivated by compassion, by visions of justice or peace or freedom, can affect so many people. Sometimes compassion shows itself not necessarily as kind of this long-term vision of what's possible, but sometimes just in a spontaneous moment. And there's one story of this which... Just epitomizes and it's it's a remarkable story. It's, maybe some of you remember some years ago there was an incident in New York. It was about somebody who who <laughs> ended up being called the subway hero. So he was on the subway uh, station platform. He was a black construction worker. Was standing on the platform waiting for a train a woman had fallen off the tracks off the platform onto the tracks and a train was coming so he saw what happened he jumped down onto the tracks lay down flat on top of this woman and the train just passed over them both i mean amazing just so this is what he said you know he got there was a lot of press about this He said, I don't feel like I did something spectacular. I just saw someone who needed help. I did what I felt was right. I do construction work in confined spaces a lot. So I looked, and my judgment was pretty right. The train did have enough room for me. (laughs) I mean, in that situation, this is compassion manifesting not as some grand world vision. This is just in a moment, you know, kind of an incredibly open-hearted guy who would have the courage and the skill and the presence of mind to be able to do that. So compassion manifests just in so many different ways, in just simple acts, you know, in acts of tremendous courage and spontaneously... There's no particular prescription for what we should do. There is no hierarchy of compassionate actions. You know, it's not that one kind of compassionate action is more compassionate than another. It's like compassion, it's limitless. The field is limitless because it's the field of suffering beings. You know, and so we each find our own way. We find the way that we're drawn to our interests, our talents, our abilities, what touches us. There's infinite possibilities for manifesting compassion and action in the world. And we we want to find our own way into this. You know, one way it manifests is in active engagement with the world, with the problems of the world. It can also manifest sitting in a cave in the mountains for years, for lifetimes, with the aspiration to awaken for the benefit of all. Now, think of the Bodhisattva, the Buddha before his enlightenment. How many lifetimes it's said that he spent, you know, as a solitary renunciate, practicing All the paramis. You know, if we took a just a little slice of any one life, we might think, "Oh, what's what's that guy doing? How is he helping anybody?" You know, and yet it took all of that practice, which finally manifests in the flowering, you know, of his enlightened energy as a Buddha. And we're sitting here today, twenty six hundred years later, and isn't it? It's quite extraordinary. We're sitting here because of the power of what he discovered. You know? So compassion can take so many forms and can look so many different ways. It's not to judge the externals. It's really to see what's the motivation. Is it a compassionate motivation that can take so many forms? You know, For the Buddha, his aspiration was not to... Just alleviate particular kinds of suffering, but really to see what the root causes of suffering are. You know, the forces of greed and hatred and delusion in the mind and how we can uproot them. As we undertake this relative bodhicitta, this practice of compassion, we need a lot of humility. Dalai Lama, he expressed it. He said, Changes in attitude never come easily. The development of love and compassion is a wide, round curve that can be negotiated only slowly, not a sharp corner that can be turned all at once. The development of love and compassion comes with daily practice. You know, so it's not to kind of get seduced by some idealistic version of how we should be, because that only will end in disappointment. We have to really start with where we are and with a lot of humility and practice it and take opportunities as they present themselves. so another Japanese uh, haiku poet, famous poet, Isa, This haiku really captures the essence of humility. New Year's Day, everything's in blossom. I feel about average. (laughs) That's it. I feel about average. <laughs> and that's the place we start. So we talked about a lot about relative bodhigitta, compassion, compassion action in the world. I want to spend just a few minutes talking about ultimate bodhigitta, which goes beyond the notion of self and other. It goes beyond all separation. Ultimate bodhicitta is the free, open nature of awareness itself. So, Dzhigar uh, Kongchul Rinpoche, he, he, he expressed in one teaching just how present is the possibility of recognizing this ultimate bodhicitta, the nature of emptiness. He said, the experience of emptiness is not found outside the world of ordinary appearance, as many people mistakenly assume. You know, we create this notion of oh emptiness and it's some kind of far-off mystical thing. It's not found outside the world of ordinary appearance, as many people mistakenly assume. In truth, we experience emptiness when the mind is free of grasping at experience. That's what we've been practicing, liberation through non-clinging. We experience emptiness. We experience that empty nature of mind, the selfless nature of mind, in every moment when the mind is not grasping at experience. One of the really transformative turning points in my practice is This was a big shift of understanding. came about when I was hearing teachings on relative and ultimate bodhicitta, on compassion and emptiness. And then realizing that these two, compassion and emptiness, are not two different things. In the union of the two, we see that compassion is the activity of emptiness. In the mind free of self-reference, in emptiness of self, the activity of that mind is compassionate response. And so to see that bringing the two together, not not having them as separate, separate goals or separate ideas or think that it's two different ways of practice. This compassion, which is the activity of emptiness, is not compassion as a stance of the ego. It's not, oh, I'm being so compassionate now. And it's not even necessarily a particular practice we do, meditation practice, although there are compassion practices. But rather, it is... This compassion is the spontaneous responsiveness of a heart, of a mind, that is free of self-reference, free of the sense of self. Then it's manifesting naturally as compassion. And this really helped me understand you know, the great bodhisattva vows that in many of the Mahayana traditions, such a big part of, you know, the vow basically to save, to enlighten all beings, and for years, I had read about that, and it sounded like a nice idea, but it just seemed impossible. You know, I, I, I had no way of connecting that aspiration with anything I could do. Of course, right there was the, the key. There was no way of connecting it to an I. But in understanding compassion as the activity of emptiness, as we become more uh, realized in this experience of selflessness, then compassionate activity is what happens. And so the bodhisattva vows are not resting on the shoulders of a self, they're manifesting as the activity of wisdom. So Dilko Kense Rinpoche, he really, he just summed all of this up, you know, in such a beautiful way. In understanding the relationship of relative and ultimate bodhicitta, of compassion and emptiness. He said, when you recognize the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. And when we realize the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So this is the great work we're all doing here together. Let's sit for a minute or two. May the merit of all our practice together be dedicated to the welfare and the happiness and the awakening of all beings.